So if I can change direction just a, a little bit here, Peter, I mean, one of the projects that um, I've looked at recently that uh, excited me in a particular way and also excited you was OpenSim. And I think for artificial life simulators, this really is a no-brainer because it removes ourselves from you know, the standard traps associated with visualization and having to, you know, create a rich visual environment that then has to be rendered, that then has to be maintained, that then has to be ported out on, you know, Mac, Windows, Linux, et al. And the vision of OpenSim caught me in particular because it, it carries on this narrative of avatars that Biota originally started with. And I think you had a similar vision with regards to it. Would you like to talk a little bit about OpenSim and your own development associated with it? Ah, yes. Um, it's actually funny that you mentioned it about the, the problems of create uh, that OpenSim sidesteps a lot of the problems of creating a platform and porting it and so forth because that's what my job was until relatively recently was working on the digital space engine and it was supposed to do a lot it was intended to do a lot of what um, the open versions of Second Life have now just stepped up and done so we kind of missed the boat there but um, let's see OpenSim is a if you've used Second Life it's you know basically it's a fairly generally trite game where you can walk around and talk to people and there's not a whole lot to do it's all user generated but um, what OpenSim is is someone they uh, basically reverse engineered the product there's actually no code from the original in OpenSim it's all been created from scratch and um, it's, it's the idea of the, the server public. world, isn't it? I mean, basically what you're doing is creating a server that people with existing uh, Second Life clients can log into and interact with as if they were logging into Second Life, but it is, in fact, your own creator server environment. That's right. Um, you can use either the existing Second Life client, one of the many uh, variants, because the Second Life client has been open-sourced and there's a number of groups that take it and apply their own um, changes to it that they feel are improvements. Um, generally are. The main advantage being, of course, is that you don't have to, that you you get a world for free. You grab this software, you put it on your machine, you, you don't even have to compile it. It comes pre-compiled, um, and because it's the platform it runs on, it'll run on everything. And then you have, you know, you have a world, you have a, you start off with a space, and it's like 256 metres by 256 metres, and it's just there, and it basically costs you, you know, an afternoon worth of setting it up. And then it, all the code there, it's all like being open source and it has um, allowances for plugins and so forth. So you can very quickly throw together your own module and load it in and um, have it do pretty much anything. And the thing that interested me, and this goes back to an early Biota podcast with a fellow called Douglas Davis, is the ability, I mean, my own view with regards to, you know, having an overlay um, environment through OpenSim was that the player or the, the, the person, the human interacting with the simulated environment would appear as a noble ape and have the same interactions with the simulated noble apes as if, you know, as if it was a noble ape. The simulated noble apes see it as another noble ape and interrogate it and do various things to the player as if they were a noble ape and the player can respond to them and interact with the environment in a very kind of personal level. I mean, the, the added interest is if you have multiple humans in a simulated environment with simulated entities, you know, how does this actually work as well? I think there are a number of layers to um, to this interface that really caught me. And in terms of debugging, I mean, this is the thing that I really get out of, like, long-term simulation of Noble Ape and tweaking Noble Ape to particular environments is that I get a huge amount of feedback in terms of the, the bugs and the simulated interaction, which 
refine my own thoughts. I mean, Peter, as you as you looked at OpenSim, it immediately gelled with you that there was artificial life potential in this environment too, didn't it? Oh, that's right. Yeah, in fact, that was part of why I started looking at it in the first place. That I was, um, my, I've got you know a number of ideas, and I thought, hey, you know, I could do. I'd already thought, can I do these on Second Life on the real official Second Life servers? Um, but then there's a free server, and it's like, hey, I can put this on at home and do it myself. But the other thing with regards to the Second Life servers is that they've been relatively hostile associated with creating artificial life. I mean, we have Jeffrey Ventrella, who really is, you know, almost founding father of certain aspects of the community, certainly Aquarius artificial life. I mean, he he is, you know, the founding father with regards to aqueous environments and artificial life. And I think he has a long legacy in terms of developing both, you know, walkers and swimmers and you know, cellular automata, and he's exploring gliders currently. And he went over to Linden Labs. I mean, this is taking, you know, a brilliant mind from the artificial life community and putting it into Linden Labs. And from that in- interaction, they weren't able to actually create an artificial life environment for a wide variety of factors. And certainly I've worked with two other teams who have worked external to Linden Labs but tried to bring artificial life into Linden Labs. And my sense of the problem is that Linden Labs has never... You know, never really kind of grok to use the the Damarian term. What artificial life can actually do in these kind of environments? Now, the beauty, as you describe OpenSim, is it's a relatively small environment for you to play with. Uh, Gerald, I mean, as we talk about this, do you imagine people logging into a a kind of Darwin at home environment through a, a Second Life client? Does that make sense to you? I think it's an excellent approach to um, to uh, playing around with some artificial life, simply because uh, one of my main uh, focuses is that things be very accessible, and uh, people already have single life, uh, second life clients, and if you can work within that environment, you've already got something that's very accessible and can reach a lot of people. Um, on the other hand, uh, I can understand uh, Linden Labs' uh, concerns because, uh, as you well know, uh, any any sort of real artificial life, if it's not just uh, totally pretend is um, you know compute intensive and they can't afford to have that on their servers because their servers are serving uh, fairly large numbers of people at the same time. So an open sim approach is really the only option because then you have a free hand to do whatever you want aside from you know what the what the server is already doing. You should be able to sort of slip some of your own code in there and uh, and not worry so much about uh, you know having. Uh, too many users at the same time initially and stuff like that. I think it's an excellent uh, approach. I would love to eventually realize um, uh, at least a, a rendering of uh, evolved Darwin at Home creatures in, in Second Life, and OpenSim seems to be a good approach for that. One of the people I'm having uh, at the Graytham meeting is a, is a real uh, Second Life uh, sort of uh, star. She does, uh, she does um, cinema, uh, machinima. In Second Life, she's recorded a number of films, so she's fairly familiar with. The, or she's actually very familiar with the whole community and uh, and Open Sim and and even tweaking up the client because, of course, it's open source. And uh, for the purposes of making the films, she had to sort of be at the, the absolute bleeding edge of uh, of the open source of the open source client. So they um, put in these sort of. Uh, uh, you know, bleeding edge plugins to have uh, lips move according to audio, you know, just to make the movie uh, something that doesn't look old too quickly because this sort of stuff is not yet in the second life. They have to sort of be ahead of the curve, which is really interesting. So they're, they're really on the cutting edge of what you can do with the client and with the server. 
Certainly. And returning to the original topic of this podcast, I mean, my great concern with regards to setting up a, a Noble Ape, you know, open sim server, or even better, a Biota Eve open sim server, is that I would never, it would completely eliminate my day job in terms of the amount of work that would require in terms of bug fixes and things like that. It would almost not be a hobby as soon as we got a certain number of users, and this is the thing that really concerns me, that these things you know, will generate so much feedback in such a short period of time that it is in fact completely, uh, could in fact be completely overwhelming for us as artificial life developers. Returning to the idea of finding value in artificial life, if we had, you know, if we had, for example, a, um, you know, a Darwin at Home OpenSim server that grew buildings for the link back to your you know, your work with the architecture film, a firm rather. Do you think this is something, Gerald, that they could utilise and would this make artificial life more real to them in terms of your own work being, you know, of some degree of financial benefit to them? Does that make sense to you? Well, you know, on the one hand, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I can completely echo what you were saying, that it would be potentially a, a vast amount of work for, for a hobbyist. And uh, I've been able to keep things in my project under control because, um, because I've been very uh, extremely, uh, you know, humble on the, on the graphics end and, and trying to, uh, you know, to keep the model as, as, uh, as, Absolutely trivial as possible, so that uh, so that it can compute really quickly. And if you're uh, if you have to surrender yourself to a, a bunch of uh, potentially solid limitations of of an open sim server, it's you, you spend a lot of time uh, uh, you know working working out those, those working through those limitations. Um, on the other hand, of course, uh, the, the ability to just have a, a ready-made client where people can uh, be familiar with, uh, you know, with, with established ways of navigating that people are familiar with. with uh, you know, it's it's a way to say, uh, look what I've got, and then everybody just takes a tour of it rather than having to, uh, you know, introduce them to all sorts of new things at the same time. So I think it, it could be, you know, very useful at least as a as a a spring uh, jumping board to get into the to get into it more because it's just so accessible and and you can probably create some impressive stuff very quickly and peter is the only one on the call who's currently being paid to create artificial life or at least artificial chemistry in terms of things like OpenSim and these kind of tools how do you see people actually getting jobs in artificial life into the future well, that's, that's an interesting one because, it, well, I mean, I don't mean to head off into too much of a direction, but a lot of people got into Second Life thinking they could get a job there, that doing things in Second Life with these singing, playing music, building things for people would become an income and become a job, and it's worked out for a very, very, very small portion of those people. There are one or two successes, some I know personally, who make a reasonable living doing things in Second Life, but there's a lot of people who haven't. Um, and I think that artificial life might go in a similar way. It had already. I mean, let's be clear here. <laughs> you you yeah. are probably the only person I could name off the top of my head, aside from Bruce Damer, and he doesn't really make a living from doing stuff with artificial life. I mean, I think the community, there are a small number of people that do things related to artificial life that make a living through it, but the hobbyist community actually represents probably the greatest number of people who could I mean, people like Jeffrey Ventrella, for example, make a living if the, the terms were there. But really, the purpose of this recording this evening was just to start to talk about how this idea of value emerges from something like artificial life. 
So what are your thoughts on that, Peter? I would like to say that, yes, this is going to change the world. Um, I mean, that's you know my personal feeling that at some point something will happen and it will be obvious to everyone, but um, I cannot see a way there, and I don't see um, even OpenSim and similar things, I don't see that immediately being, yes, this is the missing link, if that sort of answers the question. Yes, I mean, I tried to offer a blueprint in the start of the show with regards to my own thinking about how we can move towards some kind of greater sense of value. And the first part is really doing a surveying of all the uses of artificial life and working out how the artificial life community can strengthen these uses and assist folk who are who are doing these things, which you know then filters back into the community. But isn't, it, isn't it true that like there's a there's a value in in the effort in general? I mean, we're uh, on the one hand you're you're focusing on a number of very uh, challenging. Uh, concepts with respect to how you know life emerged. So you're you're, you're uh, it's a it's a um, it's an approach to computer science that's uh, you know being trying to be inspired by uh, by you know natural evolution and what happened in in the real world, and it, it's just you know it's a direction. Uh, more than uh, more than it's uh, that more than it's going to be a value in the sense of, you know, look at the results, they're valuable. It's, it's, it's valuable as a, as a sort of an intellectual direction. And um, who knows, you know, after it could take a century of, uh, of playing around in, or, you know, 50 years or something, and then we may have an entirely, entirely different form of computing, something based on quantum mechanics or something like that. You know, there's, there have already been some efforts in quantum computers, so maybe it's at that point that it turns out to be something useful. You know, there are things in in history that, despite our um, being accustomed to the high speed, uh, you know, 21st century, things like uh, complex numbers were invented and and uh, sussed out completely long before they were useful, because you know, uh, complex numbers became useful when electronics came around. So that was hundreds of years later. It may be that working in this direction is going to teach us a lot and then uh, eventually we will uh, for a completely different reason come up with a tool that uh, that makes it all possible to to realize some things so you know don't hold your breath but it might take a half century certainly yeah i sorry i'd just like to add that um it reminds me a lot of the space race that a lot of people say well what did that ever do for us we got to the moon we put some people in the moon we raised a little flag and flew on home and then what and yet there's a lot of technologi- just technological advances that are taken for granted that were as a result of this um, thing that didn't achieve anything, and yet all the spin-offs have carried on into everyday life. Yeah, and there's also this, uh, this uh, valuable concept, I thought, of, uh, of Buckminster Fuller's called precession. What he talks about, it's really a fascinating idea if you read some. I think, Tom, you would be interested in, in what he says about this. Um, the idea is that it's it's analogous to spinning a bicycle wheel. You know, you push it in one direction and it responds by going in 90 degrees to that direction when you, when you push on push on the axis. And this sort of in a in a metaphorical way, when you when you put in a lot of effort in in a particular direction and you really focus on it and you, you really flesh it out, you may discover something at completely orthogonal to it, completely 90 degrees that you know you would have never encountered if you hadn't made this trip anyway. So it's you know we're looking for emergence here. Well, we might just find emergence in our own ideas. 
Certainly. And finishing up the show this evening, Peter, how do people find your work? How do people get in contact with you? My work, my current work is on uh, evogrid.org. My past work's on digitalspace.com. You can put www in front if you really like. Um, The thing with evogrid.org is it's now a wiki as well, isn't it? That's right. We just put that, got that running in the last week or two. It's still missing a bit of content, but um, that's something I'm going to be doing this week is spending some time fleshing out the missing gaps in that. It's also, I mean, I think the community can actively contribute to that as well. I've certainly been on the site and moved Gerald from the UK to the Netherlands um, only in the past couple of days and done various other things, put in links and you know, more background information, particularly with regards to the audio. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that the community can actively contribute to. I mean, the interesting thing for me, and this is really the visions of the Evo Grid, is the idea that Bruce, in his kind of role as a kind of wandering, I don't know, technology renaissance man, has actually, you know, it's the people that have communicated with Bruce as much as Bruce himself that's really constructed the modern Evo Grid. And certainly... Um, when I listen, and I'm not sure if you've heard the private audio as well, Peter, but when I listen to a lot of the private audio conversations that Bruce has had through his travels, this gives me a sense that there's so much more in terms of the descriptive Evo grid that something like the, the wiki could actually be used to uh, to kind of distill, and particularly because text search is still the primary way that people find information on the Internet. It would be fascinating to you know, start getting people coming to the Evo grid purely through text search alone. Indeed, I keep um, nudging Bruce to try to put some more uh, stuff into text and make it more readily available, but he um, is always on the next idea. And well, I think that's, that that's means... really the nature of the narrative with Bruce. I mean, this is another reason I did the visions, is to get other voices in and actually see, you know, the amount of refining work that Bruce does in terms of his presentations. I mean, he will meet with, you know, between five and two dozen people in between each of the presentations, and every one of them perturbs him slightly. Um, anyway, look, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the call this evening. And certainly, I mean, don't be a stranger. Please participate in, in all means necessary. And it's wonderful not having you just maintaining the biota site, but also as an active part of the biota community. Well, now that I know it's actually not at a crazy American time, I can't actually take time. <laughs> well, it's at a crazy American time and a crazy, uh, crazy European time as well. And speaking of that, Gerald, it's always a pleasure to have you on the call. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to what's going to occur in uh, in two weeks' time with regards to um, you know the next race on Netherlands. Do you think you'll be able to audio record or video record some of it? Oh yeah, definitely. I'm going to try, uh, and I'm not sure exactly what to record. I mean, uh, audio might be good enough. Uh, I'll, we'll see. But I, I definitely want to record something and put it online. I mean, if you could just record people giving introductions. I mean, you know, preferably in English. And just giving a sense, I mean, I think all your stuff to date has been recorded in English. Um, And just that kind of audio is always useful in terms of just getting a sense of the kind of broader, you know, the broader group of people that actually attend these Greytham meetings. Yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, the first time we're sort of sitting around a table rather than uh, sitting in uh, in chairs facing one direction at a a presentation. So I think it's going to be an environment that will lend itself more to, uh, to that kind of thing. Very good, very good. And in two Fridays' time, we are going to be discussing artificial life and nationalism, a rather darker topic in some regard, but also a great opportunity for me to play the uh, 4th of July Biota Live theme, which I have 
squirreled away in my hard disk from the last 4th of July. Gerald, Peter, pleasure talking with you both, and thanks to the, the listening audience for listening in once again. Nice talking, Tom.